Listen, what we're doing throughout this series is we're talking about how to be clutch for the kingdom. And each week when we do this series, we're going to talk about some different aspects of life in which people are clutch. Last week we asked the question, who's the most clutch athlete of all time? And so today I reached out, and since it's Father's Day, and most dads are kind of history buffs, at least most of the dads I know are. DJ makes a joke that when you get a certain age, you stop... You stop playing sports and, and, and doing hobbies, and you just start reading books about World War II. You know? <laughs> That's kind of what you do as a dad. But I, I, I love history. So I asked some history aficionados uh, to help me with this. What are some great clutch moments throughout history? All right? I asked Mike Barber, our former associate pastor. And by the way, Mike and Debbie are doing well. Just got moved into their new place down in Graham, so I'll be praying for them. We miss them, but glad that uh, I have a quote here from Mike Barber. He said, most clutch moment to him was Apollo 13. Great clutch moment. And of course, you all know that Apollo 13, uh, you may have seen the movie, and it kind of coined the phrase in popular vernacular, Houston, we have a problem. But in that situation, Apollo 13 was supposed to go and be, I think, the, uh, the third uh, Apollo to land on the moon. But on the way, they had some issues. They realized they could not land and weren't even sure if they could get back to Earth. And that group there at NASA, in a very clutch moment, had to come up with a way to get them home safely. And they were able to do it. In fact, I kind of laughed at Mike Barber's original quote to me. He said, NASA and Tom Hanks helped save Apollo 13. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that's funny because I think a lot of people think Tom Hanks actually was you know, an astronaut, but he just played one in the movies. But anyway, great movie if you hadn't seen it. Also great clutch moment. Ask Josh Ferguson, who is one of our resident aficionados here of, of history, and he said clutch moment has to involve William B. Travis. He convinced 200 people to fight an army knowing they would die for the sole purpose to buy time for General Sam Houston so that he could keep raising and training the Texas Army. He said, if Travis didn't stand and fight with his people at the Alamo for that week and a half, the greatest state in the Union, give it up for Texas, right, would not be here. Texas would have been a funnel for Mexico to invade more territories in the U.S. also. And he didn't save Texas for, uh, he didn't just save Texas for Houston to win the war later on, but historians believe he saved major U.S. territories also. It's the greatest example, in his opinion, of losing a battle to win the war. Everybody loves that, that Alamo moment for sure. I reached out to a friend of mine named Chad Huff down in Madisonville. He's an old buddy of mine in our church down there, and he's a big history buff. But he shared a little bit different one with me that I'd heard about and forgot, but he said his clutch moment in history involves a guy by the name of Stanislav Petrov. Everybody knows who that is, right? I didn't think so. <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit about him. On September 26, 1983, he and his team are in charge of reporting to the Russian government when they believed or if they believed uh, a nuclear attack was coming against them. And on that day, they got a report saying five ICBMs, intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missiles, nuclear warheads, were on their way to Russia. But in that clutch moment, he realized that that had to be a false report. He did not report it to the government. If he had, they would have immediately launched on America and hundreds of millions of lives would have been lost. 
He kept his cool in that moment, knew something was wrong, and he and his team turned out to be right, saving lots and lots of lives. We'd all agree that's a very clutch moment, right? You may not even known about it, but it happened back in 1983. When I think about clutch moments, I also, also think about a lot of clutch quotes, great quotes throughout history in clutch moments. I think of Patrick Henry who said, give me liberty or give me death. I think of Abraham Lincoln and that that great quote there from the Gettysburg Address, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Absolutely love that quote. I love Franklin Roosevelt who said, all we have to fear is, finish it with me, fear itself. I love Dr. Martin Luther King and one of, if not the greatest speech may, maybe of the 20th century, his I Have a Dream speech that he delivered in Washington. I, I, I love the quote there from John Kennedy. We're all familiar with it. At his inaugural address, he said, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Ronald Reagan, one of my favorite presidents, this is a very popular one when I ask people about clutch moments in history. They just said Reagan's speech when he said, Mr. Gorbachev, Tear down this wall. And very soon after that, the Berlin Wall was taken down. And then you may remember that great quote from George W. Bush. Standing amongst the rubble there of the World Trade Center after the 9-11 attack with his bullhorn. And he begins to speak. And the people said, we can't hear you, Mr. President. And he responded by saying, I hear you. The rest of the world hears you, and the people who knock down these buildings, or these buildings down, will hear all of us soon. Such a clutch moment. I get chill bumps just thinking about that one, right? Well, my favorite clutch speech maybe of all time, and I'll never forget this, it's my freshman year in high school, and, and I remember that the space... Uh, shuttle Challenger had exploded. There was that great disaster. And we watched it on television at Mesquite High School. And we were just kind of depressed that day. I remember coming home and my parents said that Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, was going to address the nation. And I was like, what, what, what can he do? What can he say? What, why should I care about this? And they made me sit down and watch it. I'm so, so glad that they did because uh, he said this right here amongst his speech. He said, we will never forget them nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Sitting there that night in my den in my house on 208 South Carmack Street in Mesquite, Texas, that's the night I knew that the words of people can change you. And that's really the night that I decided I wanted to be a preacher. This was such a clutch moment. And he filled us with hope and he inspired us with his words. And I absolutely love that. It changed my life forever. From Facebook, we heard some other great clutch moments in history. Paul Revere, joined by William Dawes and Samuel Prescott, warning of a British invasion. That was a huge one. And then, of course, um, Sam Houston catching Santa Ana's army asleep to liberate Texas while shouting, remember the Alamo. These are great clutch moments in history. But I want you to think about something. How different would our world be? How different would history be if FDR had not decided to enter World War II after the attacks on Pearl Harbor? How many more 9-11s would we have experienced if we had not engaged in the war on terror? 
What if Abraham Lincoln had decided not to go to Gettysburg and deliver that great address? What if we hadn't signed the Declaration of Independence or threw all that tea in the harbor? One of my favorite clutch moments in American history. Or what if JFK had said, hey, don't ask what you can do for your country, but just ask us to bail you out every time. You know, how much different would history be? Some of you are like, hey, that's what we're doing right now, right? <laughs> history would be so different. These clutch moments had not happened. But so much of history comes down really to which, which side we choose. The side that we choose. That's what it has to do with it a lot. It's that proverbial line in the sand. It rings true really throughout all of the clutch moments in time. It comes down to which side are we going to choose. And just as each person or clutch moment in history has shaped our world and filled their purpose and destiny in these pivotal, pivotal moments, you and I, we have been placed in history at the precise time in which God has chose. And that's what this series is all about, that you and I, we are the ones that God chose to be on the field at the end of the game. All of those great heroes of the faith that we like to think about as being the great soul winners, God says, no, you take a seat on the sideline, I got my A-team on the field for the end of the game. We're going to be the ones that deliver the final victories for the Lord. And history always has us right where we need to be. With that in mind this morning, I want to talk to you about a man by the name of Joshua. I said if you had your Bibles, turn to the book of Joshua. We're going to be in chapter 24 in just a minute. But let me tell you about Joshua. Joshua is one of the most underrated leaders, really, in all of the Bible. Joshua is... He's the link between the times of Moses all the way into the times of the judges and really into the time of the kings in the, in the history of Israel. He is one of only two men who ever walked in Egypt, walked the entire 40 years of the children of Israel, wandered in the wilderness, and then made his way into the promised land. Only he and Caleb uh, spanned that time. He witnessed some of the most clutch moments in the history of God's people. He saw the plagues in, in, in Egypt. He witnessed the original Passover. He saw the parting of the Red Sea. He saw Moses come down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments. He was there, like we said, all 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And then he was the leader for all of the conquests of the Promised Land. Uh, he saw the walls of Jericho fall down all the way up to the moment that we're going to see today. And here's why I mentioned Joshua and thinking about being clutch historically. Because if you ever wanted someone in history to be on your side, it's Joshua. And I say that because Joshua always chose the right side of history every single time. And believe me, if you study, the, study his life and his, his story in the Bible, you're going to see there are dozens of moments when Joshua could have chosen this way or that way. And every single time, Joshua chose the right side. There are opportunities uh, abundant for him to choose poorly, but he always chose wisely. So here's what we're going to do this morning. When we look at this, little, this chapter here, Joshua 24, we're going to talk about how to ensure that we are on the right side of the spiritual history of our own lives. You see, we all have a physical history. It's, our, it's the story of our life. And Rick Warren like this, has famously said that sometimes our life comes down to a date in which we were born, a date in which we die, and then there's just a dash in between. 
and that dash represents our lives. You may not think too much about your physical history, but our spiritual history is very, very important because it's one that doesn't just last while we're here on earth, but it can last throughout eternity if we know Christ. We all have a spiritual history, and a day is going to come in which we will all stand before God, and there's only going to be one thing that matters. Did we choose the right side? Did we choose the right side spiritually speaking? So look at the book of Joshua with me. Look, look down there in chapter 24. Let me set the scene for you, okay? Joshua is this great leader that Moses anointed to take over for him. He leads the people of Israel out of the wilderness into the promised land. He leads them on the, all these great military campaigns in which they're conquering these cities and conquering these villages. And they come in and they, they take over this land. But as they did, the people kind of started to turn their back on God again and lose focus and Joshua was afraid that the generation in which he was leading was going to go back to being like the generation of their fathers. The generation of their fathers were the generation that came out of slavery, that God miraculously led out of Egypt, but then they turned their back on God. And God said, I'm just going to let you wander in the wilderness for 40 years until you're all dead, and I'll let your sons and daughters take the promised land. So here are the sons and daughters. They're in the promised land, and Joshua is nervous and scared that the people will once again turn away from God. And so he gathers all of the, the key leaders there in Joshua chapter 24 together to basically make sure, as we want to make sure today, that they are choosing the right side of their spiritual history in life. So look at verse 1, it says this, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and summoned the elders, the heads of the, and the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. And made his offspring many, that's the Jewish people. And I gave him Isaac. And Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt with uh, what I did in the midst of it. And afterward I brought you out. This is Joshua just kind of reminding them of the history of how awesome God has been in their lives. Verse 6, Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And our Azel folks ought to appreciate this. And I sent the hornet before you, right? All right, come on. What's the little, there's a little hornet sign in there. 
There's no hornet. There needs to be a hornet sign. How come there's not a hornet sign? All right, and there, there, you need to come up with that, Nicole. You could be you could be Miss Azel forever if you come up with that. But God sent the hornet out before him, and it probably was one of those Azel hornets out there. All right, so I sent him out to to basically drive the people out, which drove them out before you. The two kings, the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored cities that you did not build, and you dwell in them, and you eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Joshua just reminds the leaders of God's people all that God has done for them. And by the way, what we learn from this is we serve a God who is absolutely clutch. All right? Our God is clutch. I mean, yeah, that's what he's saying there. And, And so here's the thing. We want to make sure we're choosing the right side. The first thing is this. Trust God because he is always clutch. That's the first thing that we need to know this morning. Trust God because he is always clutch. And again, usually I kind of have one of these points. It's kind of like, isn't that kind of obvious, Donnie? You know, I think it ought to be obvious. But how many times do we forget just how clutch God is? And how many people do we see around us, like Joshua was seeing, who, even though God has always been clutch, are turning their back on God. So the first thing we need to make sure of is trust God because he's always clutch. Look at verse 14. It says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And here's this great famous verse that so many people know, and Joshua says it here in this situation. He says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. One of the most inspirational moments in all of Scripture takes place right here in this place and time. The choice that Joshua gives them is either continue going forward with God, who's always clutch, or choose to do things according to their own wisdom and their own ways. And there's some great quotes here in this verse, you know, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But to me, the most key thing that Joshua says, the first few lines of verse 15, when he says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord. I love that he says that. You see, as a young man, I always thought this was kind of a strange statement. I mean, I always thought, well, who would think that God's ways are evil? Who would think that? Who would think God is is evil? And, and, And why would he even have to ask that question? Here I am, a much older man, And all around me in in my life today, I see the world shifting and telling me, you know what, we have a better course of action than God's way and God's word. No, thank you, church. We'll take it on this one. Oh, you have an opinion on this? No, no, no. We know what's best. Oh, no, no. That's not popular anymore. Oh, no, no, no. That's not for today. That's for some ancient culture, but not for today. You see, if Joshua was alive today, all right, He would stand and he would say this, it's time to decide who's evil. It's time to decide who is evil. It's either the world or it's God. But let there be no doubt, one of them is and one of them is not. And that's absolute truth, my friends. Either God is evil or the world is evil. 
Because God's way and the world's way stand absolutely opposed to one another. And by the way, that's nothing new. It was going on right here in, in many, many thousands of years ago. It's still going on today. And that's why I think that Joshua had the right question. If you think it's evil today, you need to make a choice. So a moment ago I said making the right choice, choosing the right side is all about trusting God because he's always clutch. Let me add this to it. Evil is always identified as those who stand opposed to God. You see, we need to make sure that we're choosing God's way, but we need to understand there's always going to be an option out there for us that's, the, that's opposed to God's way. And we can always know which way is good and which way is evil. We can always identify that evil because evil, whether it's a person or a thing or a thought or a movement, it will always stand opposed to God. And we've got to make sure we identify that so that that's not the choice. That's not the side we choose. You know what? God always tells us uh, to do what is best for us. He always does that. And he always tells us to stay away from the things that are bad for us. The world has a problem with that. Well, how dare God tell me what to do and what not to do? How, why does God have the right to do that? Let me tell you why. God made you, right? He designed you. He created you. He knows how you function best. When he says do this, it's for your own good. When he says don't do this, you may enjoy it for a while, but you're going to break down later on. It's just not going to work. It's like putting cheap gasoline in your car. It only lasts for so long before there is going to be a breakdown. He designed us to function a certain way, and when we get outside of those parameters, we break down, which is why when we spot something that is opposed to God's way, we need to identify it as evil, and we need to head the other direction. And that's why I said if we're going to make sure we're choosing the right side, we have to know how to identify evil. Now, we're tempted to say, when I talk about things like this, we're tempted to say, well, I sin sometimes, but I wouldn't call myself evil. Well, this morning, I'm not saying when we sin, we become evil, but I am saying this. When we sin, we choose evil over God. And that's what we have to be careful of. See, making the right choice starts off with identifying what side is God on, which side is evil? How do I know the difference? Evil always stands in opposition of God. And if I choose this side, doesn't necessarily mean I'm evil, but I'm definitely choosing evil over God. I have to be very careful there. Now look at verse 16. So here's what happens. Joshua lays all this out there. I mean, he's preaching a sermon. That's what he's doing. And in verse 16, he says, Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we, would, uh, we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us up and our fathers out of Egypt. I love how they acknowledge, hey, he hadn't just brought us up, but he brought our fathers out, the ones who made all the mistakes. God was good to them. That's a good, that's a, that's a good thing to say. He brought us up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in the way that we went and among all the peoples uh, through whom we pass. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. You know what? That was a good decision. Amen? Great decision. Now look at verse 19. It says this. <laughs> this, is, this is classic Joshua right here. Wow, I love him so much. Well, that's a great, great statement. Great follow-up. He preaches this sermon. Make sure you choose the right way. And they're like, we're going to choose the right way. And Joshua said to the people, you know what? You're not able to serve the Lord. <laughs> you can't do it. 
For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. And he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And you're kind of like, what? What is he saying here? We'll read on. Verse 20. He says, if. It's like, okay, you say you're going to follow him? Okay. But if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done uh, done you good. And, and I want you to just think about that. It's kind of a, a wow moment from Joshua here in which he preaches and lays it out there, choose the right side. They're like, okay, we'll choose the right side. And Joshua's like, well, you know what? I don't think you can do it. <laughs> and it kind of seems harsh, but we need to know this truth. Choosing the right side, side means understanding this. It's dangerous to tell God you will serve him and then walk away. It's a dangerous thing. And you know what? I've seen it many, many, many times in my life. People who get on fire for God and say, you know what? I'm going to follow God. I'm going to, I'm going to be this person who, who serves him. I'm going to dedicate my life to God only later to turn and walk away. And once you know, that's a dangerous thing. And what's going on here is Joshua isn't trying to discourage them. He's warning them, we serve a God who does not play games. If you tell God you're going to do something, you better do it. If you tell God you're going to follow him and you turn and walk away, understand he's a jealous God. And he made us and he is going to, we're going to have to reckon with him basically is what Joshua is saying. Look down at verse 21. It says, and the people said to Joshua, no. But we will serve the Lord. They kind of double down. Again, good decision. And then it goes on, and Joshua said to the people, Well, then you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen to serve him. In other words, he doubles down on them as well. And they said, We are witnesses. And he said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and he put in place statues and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of the God. In other words, just in case you forget, I'm writing all this down. And he took a large stone, get this, and he set it up. He set up a memorial stone to memorialize, to commemorate this decision in this day. And, and he set it up under the terebinth, which was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. And after these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance. Look at verse 31, key verse. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord had did for Israel. In other words, the people did what they said they would do. And that brings me to the final thing I'm going to share with you this morning and ensuring that we make the right choice. We choose the right side in life we need to make sure that we do this. Live life like there's only one side, and that is the Lord's. I love their decision and what they said. They said, we're going to serve the Lord. You know why? Because there's no one else. 
No one else has done what God has done. He brought us out of Egypt. He brought us out of slavery. He delivered us. Even our fathers who were rebellious, he delivered them. They were wrong. We're not going to make that mistake. We're going to do it right. They lived life like there was only one side, the Lord's. See, there comes a time when we have to do what we said we would do, when we have to put our faith in God or when our faith in God dictates our actions. There has to be a time we say we're followers of God, then we've got to prove it. We've got to put up or we've got to shut up. Now, let me wrap it all up put a bow on it this morning and say this. Why did the original Texans stay and fight at the Alamo? You know why? Because to them, there was only one side. Why did our forefathers sign the Declaration of Independence knowing what it would cost them? Because to them, there was only one side. Why did Abraham Lincoln lead America to fight against slavery? Because to him, there was only one side. Why do we take a stand for God's word over the world's ways? Because to us, there's only one side. Why did I choose at the age of 12 to trust Jesus as my Savior? Because to me, I realized and understood there's only one side. Why should you trust Christ as Savior? Because it's the only side that will gain you eternal life. Why should you and I be clutched for the kingdom and share our faith with others? You know why? Because we are on the winning side. And there's only one winning side. Amen? You may remember last week in, we're in our talk about the greatest clutch athlete of all time. I had some great quotes from people in our area. Coach P from the high school, our, our varsity basketball coach at Brewer High School, uh, that great quote in which he said, clutch is when your beliefs are so strong you can impact other people's beliefs. That's when you know you're clutch. Clutch athletes, we just believe they'll come through. And if you're playing with them, you start to believe. Leaders who are clutch, we believe in them and we start to, it starts to change our beliefs. That's what it means to be clutch. Ladies and gentlemen, let me share with you this morning the most clutch moment in history is when Jesus said, I'll die for you so you can live for me and eternally with me. It's the most clutch moment in history. When Christ came and said, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to die so you can live. And not just live physically here, but live spiritually for all of eternity with me. Over and over again, as I reached out and asked people, what's the clutch, most clutch moment in history? So many people said, when Jesus died on the cross, it is the moment that changed and impacted everything. We literally say, when we talk about history, B.C., before Christ, and, and A.D., after, after the year of our Lord, after he came. And I, I, I believe that the most pivotal moment in history was the moment that Christ came and he paid the price for our sin, given us the opportunity to live for him here and live with him for all of eternity. Amen? That's the most pivotal moment in, in history. Now, you may be thinking, well, you know what? How does that, what does that have to do with me? How can, how can I be pivotal when it comes to history? How can I make a difference? You know, I, I'm probably never going to fight in some big battle. I'm probably not ever going to stand and give some great speech that people talk about forever. How can my life make an impact? How can I be clutch historically for the kingdom? 
Well, the other day I went to an estate sale, and if you know me, I love going to estate sales because I kind of have this knack for just finding cool things amongst other people's junk. And I was at an estate sale, and there was this room in the, in the house that was just cram-packed with people because they're all over against the wall looking at some military paraphernalia and some books, some old classic books. It was just packed. And I was like, man, there's got to be some good stuff over there. Everybody's looking. But I couldn't get over there. It was crowded, and I waited, and people weren't moving. I was like, well, you know, I'll come back to it later, or I'll just skip it. And I just scanned this room, and there was a closet. And over in the corner of the closet was this wooden baseball bat. And being a baseball lover, I thought, man, that bat's talking to me, you know? And it was just enough out of the way that no one noticed it, but just sticking out enough that I caught it. Caught it, it caught my eye. So I walked in the closet, went over and picked it up, and I was like, man, this is really cool because someone had taken the time to write 1973. I mean, that's 40, almost, eight, that's 48 years ago, right? If I'm doing my math right, a long time ago, 1973. This is Holiday, Lincoln, Mercury. I'm like, that's probably some kind of a, a sponsor for a team, or maybe that's where they worked. And over here, there's a couple of names kind of prominent. I'm guessing those are probably the coaches says G. Spriggs, and then there's all these names listed out, out here. Then it even says number two American. I said, yeah, they were probably like in their American League, and they finished second place. But here's what I, I kind of pieced together, that back in 1973, these guys here, Gene, G. Spriggs and, and uh, F. Kelly, whoever they were, they thought enough about the team that they coached or were a part of that they took and put you know, their sponsor's name on there. They put the place that they finished, put their names in there, burned it in there, got everybody's name, name from the team and put it on there, thought enough about it to do all that, and then they did one more important thing. They kept it for 48 years, for a long time. Now, guys, I got a lot of junk at my house. Anybody else like that? But I don't have a lot of junk that I've had for 48 years. You know, I tend to purge things from time to time. Now, some of y'all are like, oh, I got lots of things over 48 years of age, you know. Maybe you need to have an estate sale. I can buy some of your junk. But I was impressed by the fact that this guy had kept this one bat. There weren't a lot of bats, just one bat. Something was special about this team. Tell me something special was special about this guy. And so the Lord just kept telling me, I want you to use that Sunday morning in an illustration. I'm like, God, it just kind of seems forced, you know. It's just something I bought. I don't really know how to apply it. And that was on Friday. Saturday, Karen and I get out running some errands, getting ready for camp. And I said, hey, this state sale went to your state. I'm going to go back buy everything 75% off. And she's like, yeah, let's cruise in. She wasn't with me. So we went in there, and no one was in the book room. I was like, oh, I got my chance to go in and see what everybody was looking at. And I go looking around, and the Lord starts speaking to me. He says, find something, find something. Look for something to identify a little bit more about this bat. And I got to looking, and sure enough, I found a Bible. And I found a Bible sitting there, and it was in this plastic cover. And I, I broke it out. And guys, if I'm lying and dying, the first page that I opened to was this page right here. And it has... Uh, this certifies that Mr. Gene Spriggs, I'm like, Spriggs, G. Spriggs, that's the guy on the bat. And Miss Patsy Mayberry were united in holy matrimony on the fourth day of June, 1950 in Oklahoma. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. I know who they are. And on the back side, list their kids and what day in which they were born. And I was like, that's so awesome. And so the Lord starts speaking to me, and I had to play private investigator, all right? And where do we go investigate the history of people? Facebook, of course, right? You know, so I'm looking up all these names on Facebook, and I'm having a hard time finding any of them. 
So I finally go to the next best thing, Google. And I just said, you know what? I know their names. Just had an estate sale. One of them or both of them died recently. Just knew that it happened. That's how it works. Put in, put in their names. Found out that Gene Spriggs had passed away last, uh, last July. And his wife, Patsy, had passed away this February. And read their obituary. Said that they were faithful members of Ridgely Christian Church. Loved their family. Served the Lord. Loved the Lord. Were just faithful. Loved everybody. Served people. And here's what it said about Gene Spriggs. He loved teaching boys about baseball and scouting. And I was like, that's why he had the bat. That's why he had it. He was a baseball coach. That meant a lot to me because I've been coaching Little League Baseball now off and on for 30 years. And I love doing it. And all, every team's special for a certain reason. But this team was special to him. And say, so what does that have to do with all this, Donnie? You may think that your life doesn't make an impact in the history of things. But I'm going to tell you, although this was left in a closet and forgotten, I'm going to tell you the impact upon the people's lives on this bat will never be forgotten. And as I began to read the people who signed in on the obituary of this couple, just one testimony after another about people talking about how awesome they were and how giving they were and how they served others and cared for people, and I thought, man, these people, forgotten in our neighborhood, but remembered forever in the lives of the people they impacted. And I'm going to tell you, one of these days, in glory, we're going to get to hear all of their stories. I want to look up Gene Spriggs, and I'm going to say, Gene, I, tell me the story of this bat. <laughs> tell me all about it. I want to know all about it. I, I, I know I'm not taking the bat to heaven with me, but we can talk about it up there, okay? And Lord sees fit to just kind of boop, pop it there, and we can talk over That's great. If not, he'll give us recall. I, I believe that. And me and Gene can have a catch, just like filled the dreams, right, you know? And we can, we can talk baseball, and we can talk life, and what it meant to be a baseball coach throughout the generations. But I'm going to tell you that you never ever realize you never know here and in the now the impact that you can make when we look at all these great clutch moments in history guys you and i have the opportunity to make and be a part of those clutch moments every single day and i'm gonna tell you every year i say this is my last year to coach baseball it's just too much it's too much. It's too, it's too hard. You know, the parents are too mean. The kids are too bratty. You know, whatever it is, I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it every year. This is my last year, and every year I can't wait to go back. You know why? Because there's always some moment throughout the season that draws you back in when you realize, oh, my history in this makes a difference. Guys, don't ever think that your history doesn't matter. It, lives on, it, out, it far outlives you. For whatever reason, the family didn't want it, I got it. It's mine, and it's inspired me. And I want to use it to help me make sure that I am impact the history of those around me. And that's, to me, what it means to be clutch.